Well, speaking of spikes, the Bank of Canada, as you've been hearing, has raised its key interest rate by half a percentage point to 3.75%. That spike comes with a warning that it believes rates will, in fact, go even higher as the fight to bring inflation under control continues. We are mindful that adjusting to higher interest rates is difficult for many Canadians. And many households have significant debt loads and higher interest rates will add to their burden. We don't want this transition to be more difficult than it has to be. But we remain focused on our mandate. That is Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem. He was speaking earlier today. The central bank's next scheduled interest rate announcement is December 7th. So what does this mean if you have a mortgage, if you're thinking about getting a mortgage? Angela Calla joins us now, mortgage expert and author. Also, you will know the host of the mortgage show right here on CKNW. Angela, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, you're welcome, Jill. What are you telling people, mortgage holders, uh, your clients, about this latest hike? We're really looking at an overall review of their existing budget and trying to help them protect their equity by understanding where their payments would be should they need to review or redo their mortgage in the next year. Most Canadians believe that after we settle down with these interest rate hikes, that interest rates will decrease. But it's a matter of time of how do Canadians get and manage their budget over the next three years to make sure that they can um, be as comfortable through these difficult times as possible. Especially with the, I would imagine, the Bank of Canada governor when he said earlier today that you can expect there will be likely another hike. Uh, so what does this mean if we look at the actual figures of, of what people are paying? And we'll start with people that have a variable rate mortgage. What do they need to know about this increase? Well, this means that their mortgage payments on a variable rate or line of credit will be going up $26 per $100,000 of mortgage. So on a $400,000 mortgage, you're seeing just over $100 a month in an increase. Where we really have to be careful, Jill, is those who are nearing their trigger rates and those who have fixed variable rate mortgage payments because those that have fixed variable rate mortgage payment, their amortization could have gone from 25 years to 55 or 60 years if their payment did not increase with prime and they did have a variable rate mortgage. So those who have mortgages with TD as an example, CIBC, they're examples of uh, having variable rate mortgages that have fixed payments. So you'll need to call your lender if you're on that variable rate and have an understanding of how much runway you have before you're required to make a prepayment or you have to switch to a fixed rate. And don't forget that fixed rates are based on the bond market. So they had increased rates last week anticipating today's Bank of Canada announcement. So this is something that you absolutely have to do before the December potential rate hike as well. And when you talk again about the trigger rates or the triggering rates, what do people need to watch for there? Uh, How much room they actually have with their equity with prices rebalancing and declining in some areas before they will have to um, increase their payments significantly. They're going to be forced to do something and whether that's now or whether that's up for renewal, they need to absolutely be prepared 
for that significant increase because they haven't had the incremental increases that all the other variable rate or line of credit mortgage holders have had. So they're in for a little bit more of a shock if they haven't been um, noticing how impactful it could be for them. Uh, Do you think this is going to have an impact as well, uh, say for people that do have those fixed rates, if they're looking at when their term is going to come up for renewal? And we heard again, we heard from Tiff Macklin saying there will likely be more hikes before things stabilize and perhaps we we see things easing. So it's almost like trying to tell the future a little bit and seeing when your renewal is up, isn't it, to figure out what kind of move you should make? Yes, absolutely. Do not wait until four months before renewal. I would say that if you're up for renewal in the next year, get a rate hold today. It doesn't cost you anything. And then we can evaluate the market, but at least you have a good four months to evaluate your budget, put in place what needs to be in place. Some Canadians, when they're up for renewal this time around, are going to have to extend their amortization just due to the budgetary issues that we're all facing. Um, Or they may consider moving some money from other places to make a prepayment so that they can ensure their mortgage is manageable for themselves moving forward. Do you see this having an impact as well when we look at the cost of everything going up, be it groceries and just about everything else? If people were already looking at perhaps consolidating or or trying to to move away from maybe some areas where they were paying very high interest rates or consolidating either on a mortgage or a line of credit, is this going to have a big impact on that? Uh, Yes, it will. And it'll be very critical because don't forget, with these raising interest rates, Canadians now qualify for over 25% less than what they did just in March in terms of qualification. So with prices coming down in some areas and also qualifying for less, um, the difficult part is that the rebalancing of of the mortgage might have to be with a lender at a higher interest rate in order to improve cash flow over the short term. So Canadians do have options, but starting to look at that now instead of waiting until December when further hikes are going to be on the horizon will help protect Canadians as much as possible. So we need to take a look today at where you're at and be able to forecast that you'll be able to manage things over the next three years. And so just kind of repeating here, but it sounds like the, the one main piece of advice here is if you're in that scenario or any of those scenarios, don't kind of wait for things to change. Or like you said, the next announcement in December, figure out where things sit right now and if you need to do anything. Yes, absolutely, because understanding what your amortization needs to be so you can afford your payments, where you need to move your savings or investments, and what you need to cut from your budget needs to happen today because it will only become more expensive in the short term. All right, Angela, as always, thank you so much for joining us and for being with us today. Always here for you, Jill. Wednesday afternoon, it means it's time to check in with Claire Newell. Claire, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. Lots of uh, travel news going on this week. I don't know if we're going to get to even a fraction of it, (laughs) but let's start with the most important stuff, I guess. Yeah, we have a lot to to talk about for sure. Airports getting busy, but a reminder about a new program that's going to help people with that. 
Yeah, we talked about this probably two or three weeks ago when it was first announced. I'm hoping people are taking advantage of it. So the reminder today, a new program from YVR that allows passengers to skip its security checkpoint line. It's a new service and it's called YVR Express. You can find it by doing a quick Google search or going to YVR's website. So with this new program, passengers can book a time to enter security screening up to three days before their flight. That's the key point here. So once you've secured a spot, passengers just walk to their assigned security checkpoint within 15 minutes of their reservation, show staff a QR code, and skip the security line. So if you have that QR code, you go to a special line. So please take advantage of it. Yeah, you think anything to kind of help you through those long lines, why not? (laughs) Let's uh, talk a little bit. So this was uh, WestJet uh, trying to uh, acquire Sunwing and uh, vacations and airlines. What's happening with that? Well, back in May, there was uh, an inquiry that was started by the Ministry of Transport, and it was just to review the merger between Sunwing Vacations and WestJet. Um, and, the, you know, really, you and I had talked about it way back then and talked about the fact that there's not a lot of tour operators and they go to a lot of the same destinations. Well, the they still have until December 5th to come up with more um, and finalize the review. But as of today, they announced that by eliminating the rivalry, it's less service for Canadians, less choice, and it will result in higher fares. No surprise there. Um, you know, despite the uh, Transportation Bureau's uh, or the Competition Bureau's report, this deal still may receive approval down the road. We'll keep you posted on that. All right. Uh, that one, uh, people don't want to hear about higher fares, but to, no. to uh, <laughs> warn people about that uh, perhaps happening. Uh, if people think that uh, they've been noticing bigger crowds at airports and such, they are not imagining it uh, either. No, they're not. And uh, a report came out from NAVCAN just this week that the pre-pandemic levels in Canada for air traffic has now reached 90% of pre-pandemic levels. So no surprise there. If you've been traveling, you'll know that things are feeling normal. You know, there's the, the lineups are back. Nowhere near the chaos of the crazy summer of July and August where, you know, bags were going missing and flights were being delayed. Things are so much better on that front. Um, but the as far as air traffic, the fact that we're at 90% here in Canada is really great news. Yeah, although I would imagine, and we're, we're, I'll think we're, we will talk about this as we get closer, but it is, uh, I hate to say this out loud, two months until Christmas. So I would imagine that things are <laughs> going to get very busy as we get closer to the holidays. It, it will. It will get busier. Of course, any time that there's winter break or spring break, and even just long weekends, the airports get so, so much busier. So that's when using the YVR Express. And the other thing we mentioned was the fact that you can actually uh, – pre-clear customs at U.S. also by getting a QR code. Those types of things are going to be really important uh, as you, uh, if you are planning to travel over the holidays. Um, do we have some time to talk about Air Canada yeah. converting some options? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I, I love it when I'm seeing the airlines start to add more aircraft to their fleet. Of course, what that does is just show that things are looking good. You know, everything's emerging from the pandemic. And uh, Air Canada has converted options for 15 Airbus A22300 aircraft. I love these uh, these birds. They are 137 passengers. They have business seats and economy seats. They're uh, really a staple for Air Canada's narrow body fleets, and they allow 
the airline to compete effectively on the North American market. They'll now have about 60 of these in their fleet. And I like you. I, well, I learned this from you. Always going to Seat Guru and checking the airplane when you're booking a seat to see if uh, you get a window or where the the washrooms are located. And like you said, kind of a staple aircraft, and also one that I'm sure a lot of people have flown on. Yeah, they're really, really beautiful. You know, I'm not sure how many people have flown on them. I have, but um, they were only received in January of 2020. So just before everything kind of halted in March of that year. But if you've been lucky enough to fly on these, they're really gorgeous birds. So if you know the 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 gorgeous Airbus um, aircraft that are that are bigger, most most people know the A320s um, and maybe the A350s, which are co-designed by Porsche. Um, these have a really lovely feel uh, when you're on board. Um, another uh, piece of news, another one of Canada's largest airlines, WestJet. Um, they have begun their code share with KLM. Nice thing about this code share is that it will allow through Calgary, because that's really where their hub is. So it's easy for us to connect Vancouver, Calgary, and then continue on the nonstop that WestJet has to Amsterdam. And then that continues on with one check-in. You know, your bags would go through to 20 cities in Europe, places like Vienna, Brussels, Copenhagen, Frankfurt, Athens, Milan. I mean, the list goes on. 12 European countries are serviced. But I know there's, uh, there is some, uh, some of the flights that are going via Vancouver, but they're not to not to Amsterdam. So they are on the 787 Dreamliner. So I think for many people, it'll be worth doing that, you know, the, the hopper flight to Calgary and then <laughs> continuing on. <laughs> there is something about it. You want to get settled in and just go rather than go up and up and then it's you're down landing again. But you're right. If you're on the Dreamliner or on one of the more comfortable planes, it's probably not that bad. No. And again, more choice. So the fares to to Europe with these types of things hopefully will come down. They were really high over the summer months. But I can tell you that booking in advance is certainly the thing to do right now. We all love it when our planes leave on time as well and we make those connections. So it's great to see some Canadian airlines on the most punctual list. Yeah, it's been a it's been a while, Jill. <laughs> so this is for September. Um, just to give you a comparison, Japan Airlines and ANA All Nippon Air Air took the the two top spots for most punctual airlines. They were both sitting at around ninety one ninety percent respectively, which is fantastic. So WestJet took sixth place at an on time arrival rate of well, almost seventy seven percent. Air Canada ranked ninth, coming in at 60% of the time. That so, doesn't seem great, does uh, it? <laughs> that's not great. No. Um, but, you know, it's it's nice to see that Canada actually had the airlines in the mix. They hadn't been for a while. So we'll keep you posted on that. Things are getting better. This was for September, October. The on-time performances actually looked better for the Canadian Airlines. So the, the Canadian Airlines may creep up the rankings for October. Let's cross our fingers for that. All right. And I thought this was interesting as well. A first class, a thing of the past when it comes to some air, uh, American Airlines flights. Yeah. So... Um, I jotted down a note. It said, it really doesn't matter what it is in business. If a product doesn't sell, you discontinue it. And it's as simple as that. So American Airlines, basically, that means no first class. They will still have business class 
um, the kind of premium economy and economy class. In fact, they're going to be increasing their premium seating by 45% over the next three years. That's no surprise to me because there was a study done by a company called Skytra and premium airfares are up 36% from mm-hmm. 2019 pre-pandemic levels. Economy, only up 5%. So those you know those seats on the aircraft that are in premium economy on some of the larger aircraft, it's only like three rows. On Air Canada, on the 777s, 777s and 787s, there's only three rows of them. I think that's going to change. People love it. They don't want to maybe spend for the business class fares, but they want a little bit more comfort. They want to check in first. They want their bags to be included. They want meal service. And so this is really across the the world. We're starting to see this. Interesting. All right. Yeah, I think uh, premium economy is still better than being crammed into that middle seat uh, somewhere near the the back of the plane, for sure. Uh, Let's uh, get people traveling. What deals do you have uh, for us today? Well, I have a real quick last-minute deal to Puerto Vallarta, November the 9th. That's a pretty popular date because I thought because of November 11th, um, that holiday. Anyway, November 9th, if you can do it, Aaron, seven nights in a four-star beachfront all-inclusive resort, 819, taxes 529. Vegas, five-star. Here's a, here's a great deal. Only two dates I found this, though, November 21st or December 11th, Air and three nights in a five-star hotel, three ninety-nine taxes of two fifty-one. Do we have time for any more? Yeah, for sure. Okay, so I wanted to give this package to Italy. I think this is an absolute steal. It's um, it's a package with Air Canada Vacations, and they're offering up to eight hundred dollars off per couple. So based on two people. Um, So booking early pays on this one. When you hear the deal, April fourth through until June twenty-seventh. So some really great dates you know, in there. Airfare, three nights hotel in Rome, two nights hotel in Florence, two nights hotel in Venice, breakfast every day, high-speed train between the cities, three sightseeing tours, and private airport transfers. Again, this includes the air. eleven ninety nine, taxes of seven ninety nine. Right, so even with the high taxes, that's still a pretty good deal. Yeah, well, um, that package last year was eighteen ninety nine, and taxes were almost the same. I think the taxes were sitting at about the seven fifty mark. They just keep going up. And um, working in the industry, it's so frustrating because, you know, we're the middlemen. We're collecting it on behalf of governments. And it's just so harsh. When I first got in the industry 30 years ago, they were like 25, 50 bucks. It's okay. <laughs> this is outrageous. Yeah, it's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, Last one, Seven Night Alaska Cruise? Yes. Yeah. So May 6th through until the end of September of next year. If you didn't get to do a deal this year, this is a fabulous one. Seven Night Cruise round trip from Vancouver. It also comes with an excursion. It's a White Pass Summit Railroad Shore excursion and up to 350 US dollar onboard credit, 429 taxes of 331. So far, it's the best deal I'm seeing for Alaska for next year. All right. Some great, great deals there. And I know people can go to the website and see those and many others. Claire, always good to chat with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. Chat next week. 
Well, looking at some of the numbers, and we heard a little bit just before the news, Statistics Canada, the latest numbers are being released from the 2021 census showing 34.6% of the people in this country have no religious affiliation, more than ever seen before. And this also, the same data that was collected for the census, is also showing the highest proportion of the population, that is 53.3%, identifies as Christian. However, at 53.3%, that is down from 673 and that was what the number was back in 2011. So joining us to talk a little bit more about this is John Stackhouse, Professor of Religious Studies at Crandall University. Thank you so much for being with us. Nice to talk to you again, Jill. Uh, what are your thoughts on these numbers? Any surprises that we're seeing the numbers drop as far as people in Canada that have no or that have religious affiliation? We're seeing more with no re- religious affiliation. For those of us who've been tracking the numbers over the last generation, there isn't a surprise, Jill. There seems to be what I sometimes call the great sort going out, uh, going on in Canada today. We're finding that the number of church-going or temple-going or Gurdwara-going believers is is still pretty strong, but it's a small, actually, minority of of Canadians. And the number of people who are just um, less seriously affiliated with Christianity and, frankly, with other religions uh, continues to decline. So what we're finding is that rather than Canada being a nation of more or less sort of kind of Christians in the 1960s into the 1970s, with the the latest numbers from StatsCan, we've got a great sort into the serious believers and then most of the rest of us who just are indifferent. And I think that, frankly, that number of people who say no religion, I think it's going to grow again. And 10 years from now, you and I may have the same conversation. (laughs) And so when we look at that as well and break it down, I I find that interesting too, because it's one thing to say you're not seriously religious or you have no uh, religious affiliation in that maybe you don't go to church or to whatever whatever kind of place of worship. But then it seems like there's always been that group that kind of, you know, hedging the bets, thinking, well, there might be something out there, but I'm just not, I don't put myself in one of the groups that that uh, would would be seriously devoted to it. Do we are we seeing a change there as well? Whereas people that might have been in the hedge your bets group are now just saying no, I'm done. I'm not believing in any of this. That's a really good question. In some recent research done by the University of Waterloo's uh, Sarah Wilkins Laflamme that she's released in a new book, she looks at millennials in both the United States and Canada as the first uh, adult reading of the millennial generation, right? They're the youngest generation now that would be independent adults. And they're not that interested in organized religion. Uh, A small core of them are quite serious, but most of them aren't, even as they become married, even as they've had their first kids, which is typically when people kind of go back to the religion of mom and dad. Uh, Millennials are generally not doing that. So I think what we're going to find is that the people who are serious about religion are going to keep going, they keep supporting it. But the in-between people, the people who, for instance, in Quebec would call themselves Catholics just because that's part of their tradition, and the people across the country who would call themselves spiritual but not religious, most of those people come from Christian backgrounds, reaching back to the baby boom into the 1960s and 70s. What I'm seeing with some of the students I teach, Jill, who are 18 to 25-year-olds, most of them, they're not 
hanging on to something that they've never had. They're the first generation who've largely been raised by lots of people who aren't Christians, aren't churchgoers. So I think we roll the clock forward another 10 or 20 years, and those in-betweeners uh, are going to mostly disappear. I think we're going to d- end up being a, a nation of people who are serious about religion and a nation of people who really aren't. And do you think part of that is also because the the use for it or the need for it perhaps has changed as far as a sense of community and a place where people would gather or uh, what what religion, I guess, provided to people or help people with isn't do you, you can get it elsewhere now? Well, I think that's it helps to explain, for instance, why so many immigrant populations are maintaining the religions that they came over with, might be Christian, might be Hindu, Buddhist, Islam, and so on. Uh, But the second and third generation of these immigrants, uh, I think we're going to see they're not any more likely to go to church or Gurdwara or temple uh, than their Christian counterparts or their ex-Christian counterparts. So I think that, as you say, the, the function of a religious center as a cultural center, as a language center, a place where everybody speaks my language and cooks the same foods like we head back home, and that, of course, fades with the second and third generation. So we're, we're going to see immigrants continue to bring their religion into Canada, first generation, as long as we keep bringing immigrants, we'll keep seeing that. We're going to see evangelical Christians do what they do best, which is to hang on to their young people better than anybody else. We're going to see Catholics continue to call themselves Catholics, even though they never go to Mass. But those numbers will generally fade. And as I say, I think what we're going to see for at least the next generation is serious believers maintaining their faith, everybody else uh, enjoying the pretty good life we Canadians have had since the 1970s. And I think this, these trends will continue for at least another 20, 10 or 20 years. Why do you think there's such a difference as well? And I think these Stats Canada numbers show it even more, that if you look at different countries around the world, there certainly is a bigger concentration of religious beliefs and more uh, people who perhaps go to church and who are firm believers and followers of a religion. And, and then it kind of fades in some other countries, with the exception of the United States, where religion still seems to be a pretty big thing. Why do you think there, that is? Well, yes. Uh, Christianity was strongest, of course, 100 years ago in Europe and in North America. And now that's the, the, the main place where it's fading fast. It's, it's booming in sub-Saharan Africa, China, and South Korea, um, Latin America, as you say, almost everywhere except the Muslim-majority world, and here in the Northwest. And I think part of that is because uh, and only part of it, but part of it is because we've enjoyed uh, a, a fairly long stretch now of kind of comfort and security, and we're not pushing up against the hard questions of life. Most people in most parts of the world are routinely encountering the big questions of, of suffering, of life, of death, uh, of, of what life is all about. We Canadians are in a pretty comfortable little uh, little womb uh, that we've enjoyed really by pretty much since the 1970s. And I think it dulls us to asking those big questions until we really have to face them in the ICU. So I think that we're going to see, as they say, unless we do encounter a significant cultural shock, probably another 10 or 20 years of this kind of sort. And then we'll see how serious people are as Canadians have to deal with the real tricky questions of life that drive most people to religion.
<laughs> and you mentioned as well the number of people or perhaps the shift that we see in people who might identify saying, well, I'm spiritual, not religious. So the difference there uh, is it I might be oversimplifying it, but I would say the difference there being instead of following something where you are told what, how it is and how it operates, you get to decide what kind of spirituality or what it looks like to you. That's a very good definition, Jill. Actually, don't sell yourself short. That's <laughs> much the main difference. Spiritual means I get to decide. Religious is some priest or rabbi or guru is telling me what to do. And, uh, of course, the generation of baby boomers and those who followed aren't really very interested, as a rule, with having somebody tell me things that I don't want to know or don't want to, to feel or practice. So spiritual but not religious is still pretty popular, but most of the people, as far as we can tell from the data we've got, most of those people are ex-Christians. Uh, there's not a lot of them who are ex-Hindus or Muslims or Buddhists and so on. Um, so in a sense, it's it's kind of a, um, a fallout from the decline of Christianity generally. And if Christianity in general continues to decline, of course, there are going to be fewer and fewer of those people. We don't have very many hardened atheists in Canada. Relatively few people would call themselves atheists or secular humanists or agnostics. What we're finding is, especially among younger people, the Canadians are just indifferent. They're not hostile to religion. They're, they're not upset about Christianity in particular. They just don't know much about it, and they don't really care. <laughs> Which is a very interesting. I find that interesting as well. And when you talk about spirituality, is it not also a way for people, like you said, when you start thinking perhaps about those big questions, about those fearful questions and what's going to be happening, is it not a way to maybe make yourself feel better in that if you're an atheist, you're, you're putting it out there. You believe when you shut your eyes for the last time, that's it, you're done. If you still hang on to some kind of spirituality, you're hanging on to the idea that maybe there is something else. Well, sure, and and lots of people do. Uh, just because somebody says, I have no religion, doesn't mean that they they don't think about God or they don't think about the big questions. In fact, lots of us do from time to time, just that we don't practice a proper noun religion, and we tend to pick it up and put it down as we feel like it. I think what happens often, though, Jill, is that in our culture, which has trained us as consumers to decide for ourselves about pretty much everything, including even questions of vaccination and public health. Uh, well, it wouldn't surprise us that we've been trained to make up our own minds about religion as well. And, and the question to me, as somebody who studied religion seriously, is, are you really competent to make those big decisions yourself? Um, are we really competent to decide about vaccination for ourselves or these public health issues? And if we're not, then maybe the very biggest questions, we really should consult people who are maybe older and wiser than ourselves. But that's not the cultural mood we're experiencing mostly today. Right. And that makes a lot of sense. One other question about this. Do you think that it plays into it at all that especially I would think for younger people, when we look at scandals that have rocked different religions, we talk about the, the Catholic religion, certainly uh, the talk and stories about residential schools in Canada. When we look at various wars that have broken out that can be traced to religious differences, uh, do you think people are getting tired of that and tired of religions being that this being such a big part of them that that could be part of the reason why they're leaving? Well, there's no doubt about it, Jill. Um, the Catholic Church has had a generation and a half of scandal, 
And uh, that's been uh, really difficult for Catholics, because for them, priests really do represent God in a way that's not quite true for Protestants, who can just kind of replace a bad pastor with the next one. So that's been pretty tough on our Catholic friends. I'm a Protestant myself, and we've had our own share of scandals and of disappointments. We're implicated in the residential schools question as well. I think, by the way, Jill, this residential schools issue um, helps to explain one of the shocking statistics from the StatsCan report, namely the, the very large number of First Nations people or Aboriginal descent people who say they have no religion. It's almost 50%. They used to be the most Christian population in the country since about the 1980s. And they have been rocked so badly, I think, by the revelations of these uh, Christian-sponsored schools that this is now the probably among the least religious populations in the country. That's a, a very shocking uh, change. So I think the reverberations of Christianity's um, misbehavior, so to speak, uh, among the residential schools, uh, implications in racism, sexism, and so on, uh, continues to take a toll. And it's probably going to take a, a toll for another another 10 or 20 years until it reaches rock bottom. All right. Interesting uh, findings for sure. Professor John Stackhouse, thank you so much for being with us. No, thanks. Good visit with you, Jill. Thanks. Well, it was a sad discovery for a couple walking along Malcolm Island, that's off the northeast coast of Vancouver Island. They came upon the body of a young humpback whale washed up on the beach. Joining us to talk about what we know so far about this is Caitlin Birdsall, the Director of Development with the Marine Education and Research Society. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Not uh, a super happy story to be talking about and looking at a whale who is affectionately known as Spike, but the body of Spike found dead on Malcolm Island. What do we know so far about what perhaps has happened here? What we know is that on Sunday, uh, two locals were out for a drive and a beach walk, um, Angela and Laurie Pince, and they discovered this body of a humpback whale off northern Malcolm Island. Um, one of the things they did right away was let our team know, which is really important because it meant the very next day on Monday, our team from the Marine Education and Research Society could get out there and secure the body. Now, the reason we wanted to do that is that so often when whales die, their bodies sink or they disappear. So we never learn what impacted them or why they died. Um, but by being able to secure the body to the beach right away, a necrosy could happen. And that's actually what's happening today um, on Wednesday here. Do we know anything then? I mentioned that this whale's name is Spike. Do we know anything or is this a whale that you and others at the Marine Education and the Research Society you were familiar with? Yes, so this is a whale that we know. Um, the whale is affectionately known as Spike. We often give them nicknames. And we um, base those nicknames based on uh, what we can see in their tails. The underside of their tail flukes is actually what we use to identify whales. And often based on the shape or the scratches or the nicks, um, you can see sort of little shapes or pictures within those whales. And we often use that to create that nickname. So this whale was named Spike due to uh, like a little spike on her tail fluke. Um, her official name is BCX1847. Uh, um, and this is the whale that was first recorded by the Marine Education and Research Society in 2018. Now, it's a whale that has been seen and recorded each year since. And she most often is observed 
in the waters north of Port Hardy off northern Vancouver Island. Now, we know Spike is a female. We also believe Spike is fairly young. So the first year that she was recorded, 2018, she was not a calf. She was not with her mother. Normally, humpbacks spend the first year of their lives with their mothers. Um, but we still believed her to be fairly young at that time. So her death seems untimely. She seems to be a younger whale. So this is not um, probably a death from, from older age. Right. And you mentioned, too, that uh, while this is a, a sad discovery, definitely, the fact that the, the body is there and that the necropsy will be able to be done, uh, that we will be able to get some more answers or get a better idea. Uh, do you know anything then as far as even the, the shape of the body, the body it was in, whether there's a, a thought process that, that she, the, the whale was hit by a, a vessel or does it give you any indication as to what might have caused her death? Yeah, so right now we do not know what caused Spike's death. Um, Our team that was on the ground on Monday with uh, Spike's body did not observe any um, sort of really obvious external injuries. But that doesn't mean that she wasn't impacted by by something. Often um, these injuries can be internal. And that's why um, they will be doing the necropsy so that not looks at the external body of the, our, of these animals, but we'll also look internally, look at the shape of the organs, see if there's any broken bones. They'll also take samples as well to look for diseases, parasites, and to also check if she was feeding. They'll probably look at her, the contents of her as well. We know that humpback whales are impacted by a number of anthropogenic threats, so including vessel strikes. And in fact, earlier this month in Washington state, there was both a minke whale and humpback whale found dead, and both of those had been killed by vessel strikes. Now, humpback whales, um, unlike things like killer whales, do not have echolocation. And at this time of year, they're often really focused on feeding and can be very, very oblivious of boats. And, and so uh, it's really important that uh, people who are on the water, both in recreational and commercial vessels, understand that those animals are out there. They need to be look on the lookout for them because collisions can happen um, and, and sometimes with really dire consequences. And what are we looking at as far as the numbers? And I know that the couple that found the body of the whale uh, said that, uh, you know, it was upsetting to find this, not only because they discovered the body of a whale, but also because people will often look out and see humpback whales in in the ocean. But what do we know as far as the numbers? Are are we concerned about uh, the numbers of humpback whales that are left or, or what's happening to them? Yeah, it's actually a really interesting story, Jill. Um, Humpback whales have actually made quite a comeback on our coast here. Um, so we, uh, we hunted them up until the late 1960s, and their numbers were very low at that time. And since the, the population has been increasing, and even more recently, we actually believe that we're getting animals moving in from other areas maybe due to changes in prey availability or climate. So we've really seen an increase in humpback whales on the coast of British Columbia, especially over the last 20 or 30 years. So that is a good news story. However, because their comeback has been so quick, and a lot of people who have spent, you know, 30, 40, 50 years working on the water are not used to 
them, we are seeing an increase in incidents like vessel strikes or entanglement because we are are just sort of working around them as well. So while their numbers have come up, we have also seen um, an increase in sort of uh, negative incidents between um, sort of human-caused threats and these animals as well. Well, we will be uh, waiting to see uh, what comes of the necropsy uh, and what else we can learn about uh, what happened here. Caitlin Birdsell, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this today. Oh, thanks so much for your interest in Spike and sort of allowing her to be an ambassador for her species.